in writing a place and getting it accurate, you're tasked with the challenge of capturing the essence of a location within sparse details and bringing that to life on page. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And we are coming to you live from an undisclosed location in Dallas, oh, Texas, no. on the no. 47th floor of this gleaming no. office tower overlooking Stop. the entire city of... He's making it up! <laughs> And we've got this fantastic room. There's a round table in the middle. There are two microphones there. We sit across from each other, look each other in the eye as, as we're recording. There's soundproofing all over the rooms. There's a little table on the side with lots of bottles of water. And there's someone that brings us in snacks from time to time. Touch. Okay, now I like that part. Keep going. <laughs> uh, today's topic is going to be about settings, whether to choose a real setting or an imagined setting. And I'll, I'll leave it to you to guess which I just described. But um, no, don't, don't. We're not going to take any chances there. That was made up. <laughs> <laughs> Reality is Steve and I on Skype recording. Me at my messy desk and him at his probably most amazing soundproof studio, which is probably where he's getting the ideas for all that imagination. No, that, that is actually a fantasy of mine to have <laughs> soundproofing like that. Here's what I actually have. I, I am in an office with really high ceilings, a tile floor. There's, um, some, there's a rug on the floor, but there's a lot of tile, and there's a, just a ton of echo in the room. So I have this piece of foam that I put up in front of my monitor and in front of the microphone so that my direct voice gets absorbed into the phone. And then echo is caused by sound bouncing around the room. So I have a door halfway open, the door to the room halfway open with a beach towel on it. I have another door with a beach towel on it. And behind me, I have a chair with a third beach towel on it <laughs> to absorb echo so that my part of the show sounds as good as possible. And I've, Your I've, part of the show sounds amazing. I've come to this. I used to be in the closet, which was really amazing sounds. It was but not a euphemism for anything? No, yes. Thank you for clearing that up. Uh, <laughs> it was actually in a walk-in closet surrounded by clothes and without an air conditioning duct. So when we would record during the summer, I would just be sitting inside sweating. And it was... Suboptimal. I just reached the point where it's like the sound quality is not so important that I'm willing to have heat stroke <laughs> to wow. not have even a little bit of echo. Taylor, describe your office. Um, I am at, in, at a corner desk, like an L-shaped desk. I'm in the at the corner part, which is the widest. My desk is completely surrounded by, it's just chaotic. There's stuff on every surface. There's something of things that I'm in bills that I've got to pay, um, tubs of note of, of pens and, and stacks of notebook paper and journaling books and to-do lists and books that I'm taking notes out of. It's just, it's chaos. And, um, I have a little snowball microphone that Steve sent me 
as desperate measures to try and help us have some kind of quality as we were doing this show. Well, that was um, my original podcasting microphone. Actually, my second podcasting microphone. It's a blue, I think it's, is it just BLU or is it BLUE? Uh, BLUE. Okay, and so it's called a blue the, snowball. And the cord is a little funky now, so every once in a while we'll lose connection. Like, he just can't hear me, but I've got a replacement cord. Woo! Progress. Um, <laughs> Uh, every once in a while, the humidifier in the room will kick on. Sometimes I have to turn off the fan because you can hear the clickety noise of that. Um, I don't have any soundproofing in here. Thankfully, there's, I don't think there's a ton of echo. Yeah, your room but... doesn't have a lot of echo in it. So, that, yeah, that's, that's not the same issue that I have. And for you authors out there who, I know some of you already do podcast interviews on a regular basis, but if you think you might be doing podcast interviews at, at some point, and you probably will if you're going to support your book, you'll, you'll find people that do podcasts and reach out to them and ask to be guests on their show. Um, getting an inexpensive microphone, I use uh, an ATR2100, and you can look that up on Amazon. ATR2100, I think I paid $69 for it. And I sent back a microphone that I'd paid almost $300 for because I didn't like the sound quality. I like the ATR2100 better. So it's a, it's a great little microphone. You just plug it into your computer. It works great with Skype. Um, Taylor's microphone, probably about the same price. And you can also get those headphone microphone dealies that uh, young people use to play games online with. And they're like oh. 30 bucks or, you know, I've heard people paying as, as little as $15. Anything is better than using your computer microphone when you're doing a, a Skype interview. So I just bought a new microphone, actually. I haven't even had a chance to try it. But um, there was a Radio Shack that was liquidating and they had this really expensive microphone and it was 80 percent off. And it's Ooh. the type that you just clip onto the side of your computer a lavalier uh, is it no 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 uh, no, no not a lavalier mic a lavalier. No. no um i'm gonna grab it hang on one second okay i will whistle and sing while she's doing that <laughs> <laughs> oh shoot she um, got back quick no it's just called a clip on a clip on microphone and so i'm gonna give it a try because sometimes when i'm recording like i'm starting to do more patreon videos and mm -hmm. stuff and i don't want to always be sitting at my desk because there's really bad lighting in my office i mean it's great for me but not for the camera and so lugging the snowball with me to different locations where there's better light around the house is really a pain, so I'm hoping that this might partially solve that problem. And so it's something, that. it's something that you plug into your computer, not your phone. Correct. Well, maybe it'll plug into the phone, too. I don't know. But I don't know. I think it's, a, it's USB, so it would have to plug into the computer. Okay. Well, cool. So anyway, that is two separate views on our studios. One is the imagined view that if I were writing fiction about a podcaster— <laughs> and his partner, I would put it in the, on the 47th floor in Dallas, Texas, and it would be awesome. Uh, the reality is a Maybe little bit Hawaii, different. Maybe Hawaii, Hawaii, if we're going for that, you know, somewhere with good weather. <laughs> Today we're talking about setting, and, and not in the traditional sense like, you know, describing a setting or developing this rich setting. We're talking specifically about the choice that authors have to set their story in a real location or a fictional location. And there are a lot of reasons for both. 
I have seen stories, and there are some stories that are kind of fun, where you read them in a fictional location, and you kind of know what they're talking about, and you know where it is. Like, Gotham City is really New York City. We all kind of know that. <laughs> but they didn't want to use New York City. They chose to use Gotham City. But Taylor writes books where the settings and the reality of the settings and the uniqueness of the settings are a compelling part of her books. So the two different ways you can go with settings. Why do you choose, Taylor, to to use these unique settings, the settings that are so unique in fiction that, that most people don't choose to use? Um, well, it started with the informationist because I was writing about Equatorial Guinea. And when I was writing that story, I had no idea that it I, you know, my goal was just, I want to finish a book and I had no idea it would get published. I had no idea that it would become the start of something more, but that sort of set the tone for everything that came later. And I got tagged with, I'm the author that writes international settings. Um, you know, and people love that. It's exhausting trying to get it right. Mm -hmm. But, um, so, you know, it's a reader expectation. And if, and when the time comes that I'm not writing Monroe and writing other things, I'm definitely hoping to tone that down a bit because, you know, having the liberty to write something that may or may not actually exist is is a lot easier as long as you can make it realistic. It's so much easier as an author to not have to worry about that exact authenticity. And then, you know, I've spoken a bit in my newsies and also a bit on, on Patreon about a, a story that I started a long time ago and then picked up again. And it's it takes place in rural Texas, small town. And in that situation, although the overall setting is as real as I can get it, the town itself is fictional. And the reason I chose to do that is when you have a place where people are not shown in a very favorable light, it might be to your benefit to not actually pick a place that exists because, especially a small place that exists, because in my experience, people have a tendency to think that those you're writing about them, even when you're not. And the last thing you want to do is alienate your readers that mm -hmm. these unpleasant people that you're writing about are real people in maybe even them that you're talking about. So, um, yes, I am known for writing very authentic locations, but I would prefer not to at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I interviewed a guy for the Author Biz a week or so ago who writes thrillers based in South Florida. And the series that I'm writing now is based in South Florida. And he spoke glowingly of the need for more stories in South Florida. His, his series takes place in the Keys, which is a very unique location. So it, it would not make sense for him to write something, you know, some made-up key. So he, he's writing very specific stories about a very specific location and then making up places inside those locations, and he believes that's a big part of the success of his series. He thinks there are a lot of readers out there that like to read about uh, the Keys in South Florida, and they like to read mysteries and thrillers that take place there. I am one of those people, and there's not enough supply. I think he's right, but I think that in choosing a location like that, in my situation, my the Monroe books are 
each one takes place in a different country mm-hmm. or a different part of a country. And and so it's it's different. Whereas with him, he's said he's setting all his books in more or less the same place. And I think the key to doing that is to have a place that's actually interesting or off the beaten path in such a way that you can make it interesting to your readers. If it's the same place that you're writing about that doesn't have a certain flavor or character, like say New Orleans or um, the Keys or the Bahamas, someplace that has a sort of a little bit of an exotic, unique flavor to it, it can get boring to constantly have the book in the same place unless you're able to create sort of a character out of that place in so much as these stories couldn't happen anywhere else because the place itself is what helps to bring them to life. If you were writing, uh, I mean, some of, some of your scenes in the information is take place in Dallas. Yes. Um, when you write scenes that take place in Dallas, are you taking real places in Dallas or are you just using Dallas and then sticking buildings or facilities wherever you darn well please? I've done both. Um, in the doll, for example, there it, the opening sequence, Monroe gets shot and tranquilized and kidnapped, and it takes place along the the Dallas North Tollway, North Dallas Tollway. I don't know. I, I sometimes get it wrong. It said it's used both ways, but there's this corridor of this tollway that runs through the heart of. Uh, one part of Dallas, and it's it's north. It's considered North Dallas, and it's it's a, a almost like a second downtown. And the this corridor has these really tall buildings, lots of um, not skyscrapers, but definitely office towers on both sides. And it's in this location that in the story that she's she's shot, and they they trace the. The trajectory to a certain they, they track it down based on distance and where this building could which which buildings could have been possible um shooter locations and the location of that tollway the look the the setup of the buildings is all authentic and i had buildings in mind to describe them but they are not real in terms of actual placement within the story. Would you, if you, let's, I'm going to come up with an absurd example because I don't know Dallas at all, but let's say there is a, um, an AT&T building and you decided that an event needed to happen outside the AT&T building or inside the AT&T building. Would you be apprehensive about a murder or a kidnapping inside of a named building? No, I wouldn't actually, but I'd have to have a really good reason to put it there. Like if it was going to be inside a named building, then that would need to be integral to the story of why it was in that specific building. And it would have maybe the plot would have to do with someone who worked there or 
something along those lines. And it's kind of like the sh- the show that we did last week on foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. To name a building like that is a form of foreshadowing where you just it's expected to mean something. And if it doesn't, and you you name this building as a throwaway, it's like why 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 do that? You know, now you're expected to get all of these details accurate, and they're not even going to be interesting, and. And it doesn't even have anything to do with the story. So why put yourself through that? Okay, let's talk for a minute about pluses and minuses for picking a real location versus um, a a location that you sort of make up yourself. Uh, One of the things, I mean, you mentioned New Orleans. That's a great example. The Keys are a great example. Uh, New York City is probably a great example. Um, There are places that all you have to do is to mention the name and readers will be somewhat grounded in the city. They've been there or they've read enough about the location to have a sense that, oh, if it's in the Keys, it's hot, it's humid, there's water everywhere. Um, you know, they know that much. So you don't, it, it saves a little bit of time in terms of creating an environment. Is, is that is that a legitimate positive for using a, a real location? Um, I, maybe, and the, the, when you're saying that, the first thing that came to mind was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is one of the few classic books that I've read. And I, I read that book and was bored to tears. And part of the reason I was bored to tears was that so much time was spent describing mountains and valleys and, and everything. And I've been to Switzerland multiple times. And there were no words on that page that could possibly do justice to what you actually saw in real life. But she was, it is a she, isn't she? Yes. Okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> how uneducated I am when it turned, when it comes to, to literature, um, trying very hard to get those words onto the page to dis- to describe it. And the reason the story was so boring to me is because I've been there. I have television. I've seen all of these things. Mm-hmm. But at the time period that that book was written, this was how people traveled in their imagination. And, and that was there was no way to to just say in the Alps and people would get what they were talking, what the writer was talking about. And so in, in many ways, fiction today is shortcutted. We don't have to go through all that struggle to to visually represent a location on the page that was done back then. But at the same time, the shortcuts can also make us lazy. And and we can um, leave out atmospheric things that could actually bring depth or, um, I don't want to say depth, it's the wrong word, but bring a sort of uh, immersion to the story simply because we expect that people already know these things. So there, there's a balance to strike there. Thankfully, we don't have to go all the way over to the extreme of having to describe what a ravine looks like. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it can be dangerous to just assume that people know. And also, it's really easy to fall into cliches as well when... And and that's something I really try to do in my own work when I'm writing these locations, exotic and foreign and whatever as they are, there's still a certain expectation in readers' minds of what a place is going to be like. And I'm going to look for something that people probably don't know about 
an aspect of that location that they wouldn't have seen on the Travel Channel or they wouldn't have visited in a one-week vacation type setting. So, yeah, uh, I don't know if that was exactly clear as an answer, but the the gist of it is there's there's a balance that has to be struck. Okay, and and you mentioned you mentioned something that sort of leads into my next question, which is as readers, a lot of us like to be educated as we're or to feel like we're being educated while we're reading entertaining fiction, and it's one of one of the things that struck me so much uh, about the Informationist when I first read it was. This location is so exotic because I knew absolutely nothing about it. And so I felt like I was learning as Monroe was, was you know, narrating the story um, that, that was taking place all over in these countries and cities that I'd never been in before and never, for the most part, never seen on the Travel Channel. So you have the opportunity, both the opportunity and the requirement to be accurate and and to educate in a way that's entertaining and keeps the story moving and has to be right. Yeah, and that's why I'm I'm to anybody who's trying to make this decision of should I set it in a real place? If you don't have to, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> because the it, it is really difficult really difficult to convey how difficult it is to write those stories because there's it's it's two challenges not only do you have the challenge of writing a thriller that is character driven and complex you've got to also make sure that the details that surround it are accurate and getting those details accurate is far more complicated than it sounds because it's not just knowing how something looks it is omitting enough detail that the per- the reader can feel where they are and get a visual of where they are but not so much detail that someone who's been there and who remembers it differently is going to nitpick it apart because that does happen if you Say I stood at the corner of X and X Street where this building was on my right, that was on my left, and there were cobblestones at my feet. Somebody who was there three years ago who wasn't paying attention in the same way you were will say, that's not true. I was there and it was nothing like that. So in writing a place and getting it accurate, you're tasked with the the challenge of capturing the essence of a location within sparse details and bringing that to life on page. It is hard. It is so freaking swear word hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I wouldn't wish that on someone, especially when they are just setting out. And, you know, it's hard enough to write an interesting story as it is without adding on this extra challenge. So that's why I say if I had to choose and I had the opportunity to write something else, I'd go lighter on the realism. Okay. I I think you've answered the questions and I'm feeling pretty good about 
choosing to set my series in a fictional town versus a real town. And so I think I'm going to to move forward in that direction. Well, I have one more observation okay. in terms of fictional versus real. And that is, for me, when I'm actually building out scenes, it's really hard for me to write a scene if I don't have a strong sense in my head of what the place looks like, whether it's a fight scene inside a building, whether it's a chase scene through a city or a countryside, any of these these locations where something is happening and in a story something is always happening or it's boring, mm. it's, it's very hard to write that without knowing what the place looks like because so much of my writing, the way that I describe things is integrated through actions. And you can't have someone pick up a glass off a table if you don't know that there's a table in the room. When I'm setting a scene in something, in, in a location that either is not real or that it's not important enough to name, it's really helpful for me as the author to at least get a visual. It doesn't even have to be that the building that I'm visualizing doesn't even have to be in the same city. It doesn't even have to be in the same country, but I have to be able to see a building. And once I have that in my head, then I can make up parts of it and, and create something out of whole cloth. So if you're, if you're a person like me that needs that visual, it's okay to actually, you know, take something from your childhood or take something that you saw on television and convert it into something that's not real and not name it or whatever to give you a basis for this thing that you're writing because creating it out of complete nothing is just that much more work. All right. Well, thank you for the education today. Taylor, you know, this is episode 95 no, I didn't know that. <laughs> wow, we've been doing this a long time. Yeah, when you think about I mean, we've take, we've had a couple of periods where we've taken a little bit of time off, so we've probably been doing this for two years now. Wow. And uh, it's, it's kind of amazing. You think about all the time that's gone into setting these up, recording them. Uh, and, you know, I, I, was, I was talking to my wife this morning about the way we do these shows and the way that you're able to just speak extemporaneously on the topic with essentially no preparation at all most of the time. And it's amazing. It's, it's something that, that I enjoy doing, and I, and I hope um, listeners have enjoyed for the last 95 episodes. And I'm feeling a little sense of pressure about episode 100 <laughs> and, oh, do, no. and doing yeah. something special. Thanks so, for that, Steve. Now I'm feeling it too. Yeah. Um, so um, if you guys, if you guys have any ideas out there, um, let us know. But I, I mentioned this. I mentioned 95 episodes of the time and everything as a way of leading into Taylor's Patreon account, which is a way of thanking her for the education and the time that goes into and the money that goes into running this podcast. So Taylor, where can people learn more about your Patreon account and why should they care? Uh, 
well, why they should care. That's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you why you should care because you're listening to this show every week. And Taylor's been doing this for two years now. And she set up this Patreon account. There are, there are different rewards at different price levels. And, you know, not everyone can afford to give anything. Um, but I have people who've become patrons. Like I, the, the lowest patron pledge level is $3. But I have people who've signed up at a dollar just to give something. And that just touches my heart so much. Um, pa Patreon is a, a website, uh, a platform that brings the idea of patron of the art together where many people collectively can help support the artist in a way that kings and lords of old used to be the single patron of an artist in, in olden days. And it's a way to help fund, in this case, the, the podcast, the email, the, new the newsletters, and other projects that I'm trying to kick off the ground, and also a way to keep me writing. Um, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty in the publishing industry, and sometimes even if you have a book being published, it doesn't necessarily mean it's enough to live on. And when there's not enough, when you can't live off of your writing alone, that forces you to do other things that take you away from writing and mean that you can provide less. So for, for those who want to see more of that artist's work, whether it's a writer or a podcaster or a, a painter, graphic designer, their patronage is what keeps the life stable enough for that individual to continue to create. And that is why I started the Patreon page. And it's, it was very humbling to do that because I don't like asking for help. I've, I've done almost, I mean, I've taught myself everything I know. I've, I've built myself from, I, I can't even say from bootlaces up because I think I started without boots. <laughs> and I had to, to get the boots and the laces before I could pull myself up by them. And, and so I'm a very proud person in that sense, and it's very difficult to ask for help. But I realize that this is what I love. I love being able to teach. I love being able to write. It's what I'm good at. It's probably the only thing I'm really, truly good at. And I think it would be sad to go and have to try and enter the corporate world. Anybody, so many people would be good at that, and I'm not. And I can do this. So, it, and, I, and I can I can teach in a way that others can't. So it, it, the Patreon page was a way to try and keep this going. So that is at Patreon www Patreon that's p a t r e o n dot com slash Taylor Stevens. And it is an honor for me to do this show with you each week. Um, you know, we banter and we joke back and forth uh, constantly and. I sometimes I, I, I I'm certain that listeners don't realize what a thrill this is for me to get to do this with you every week. Uh, it, it's an absolute thrill. And You're it's trying it's, to choke me up, Steve. And okay, it, I it's also right <laughs> my honor to be one of one of your supporters on the Patreon page. So um, if you're out there, if you've gotten anything from this show, um, please 
check it out. Um, consider uh, consider patronage now or at some point in the future if, if now's not the right time for you. Um, that's the end of the commercial for Patreon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, before Taylor starts crying. And uh, that is it. We will be back again next week and feeling this immense pressure to come up with something unique for episode 100. If you've got any ideas. It. I have it. We just you... don't do a show 100. <laughs> And we can skip <laughs> so it's over like the, it and we it's go like the 13th to floor. Oh, that yes. is brilliant. Yes. That's that's see that's why you're in charge that's, of the that's show. An, that's an author trick right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. If, if you guys have any great ideas for episode 100, we'd love to hear them. Um, if not, I'm kind of like yours. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I had an episode 100 of the author biz and I didn't even realize it was ep- episode 100 until I did the show notes and I'm like ah I should have done something but I didn't so here's our chance or, right. or we'll skip it so thanks for listening we'll be back again next week with episode 96 and the countdown to episode 101 <laughs> <Continue>. <laughs> <laughs> leave you guys next week <laughs> <laughs>